All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, one passage of scripture, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. This is a passage of scripture that every Christian should memorize. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. You going to put it up? For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God himself ordained for us to walk in since before the world began. For by grace you have been saved. That's the first significant word in this passage. Grace was God's gift. You didn't help out. You didn't climb up on the cross and die a little bit with Jesus for your own sins. He did it all. He didn't also take any of your good works into account and say, all right, my sacrifice plus your good works, I think I'll save you. No. By grace, you have been saved. God's riches at Christ's expense, that's grace. Unmerited favor, unwarranted, undeserved. It means that the gift of salvation was given to you free of charge by a benevolent God who simply loved you because he created you. And you didn't have to work for it. You didn't have to earn it. And you didn't have to try to make yourself better in order to get it. You didn't have to go change the following 27 things in your life. It's like Israel in Egypt. God didn't come to them and say, here's the law, keep the law, and if you keep it good enough, I'll bring you out of Egypt. No. Deliverance from Egypt was free of charge. All you got to do is follow. Moses is going to walk before you with the rod. All you got to do is just go with him. And the sea's going to part. You're going to cross on dry ground by grace. But then the second key word is faith, through faith. Faith is the open heart and empty hands with which we approach God and say yes to his gracious gift of grace. All faith is, is the willingness to receive God's grace. Without grace, faith is null and void. If God's not giving something, your faith does not produce anything. And we tend to think of faith as something that produces something. I've got faith for this, and I've got faith for that, and I've got faith for this. But if God was not giving this and that, then faith means nothing. Faith is not power. It's not the power to produce or to create anything. All faith does is recognizes God's grace and says yes to it. See? I don't know where that came from, but I'll take that as an amen. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, meaning even faith doesn't come from you. It's the gift of God, not of works. So even your ability to say yes to God came from God. So God says, here, I'm going to give you a gift. And then he works in you and gives you the ability to say yes to receive the gift. And then you receive it. The whole thing is God's gift from beginning to end. But Then he says, however... It's not that works have no part of it. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God himself ordained for us to walk in since before the world began. So you got grace, and then you got faith, and then you got works. Grace is God's benevolent gift. Faith is our amen to God's benevolent gift. And works is the evidence that we have said amen to God's benevolent gift. Meaning what we do, the way we live our life, provides the evidence to the world that we actually, by faith, have said yes to what God has freely given us through his grace. Which means that if there's no works over here, that probably means there was no faith over here. James says it this way, faith without works is dead. It's meaningless. He says in that same passage, if you run into a friend of yours who's starving and naked, and you say to your friend, be warmed and filled, can that faith save him? I got faith for your provision, my friend. Be warmed and filled. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> that faith cannot save him. Give the man some money. <laughs> Feed him some food. Put a robe around the brother so he's not walking around butt naked. That will demonstrate that you have faith. Yeah. And your faith will demonstrate that you have said yes to the gracious gift of God. Now we know that this works for salvation. But we tend to think that this paradigm of grace, faith, and works only applies to salvation. It applies to everything. This is not just the basic theology of salvation. This is the basic theology of everything. Grace, faith, works. It applies to everything. It applies to your marriage. It applies to your job. It applies to your career. It applies to your parenthood. It applies to your children. What is that? Where's that coming from? It's not my phone. Turn that mess off. So we're going to have to do an investigation to figure out where that's coming from. I don't think it's coming through my microphone either. Can you just mute everything else? But today we're going to talk about a specific application of this principle, of this paradigm. It applies to your money. Now, I haven't talked about money in a long time, have I? And there's a reason I haven't talked about money in a long time. The reason is, number, there, well, there's a few reasons. First reason is that by and large, the members of this church are super faithful givers. Yeah. Those of you who are faithful givers, you are faithful givers. And there's more of you per capita in this church than in the average church in America. Yeah. Way more. And secondly, even those of you who are faithful givers in this house give far beyond the national average of what the average faithful giver in America. I mean, it's what God has done here is beautiful. Yeah. So I don't in any way, shape, or form want you to interpret this sermon as a, the church needs more money, so pony up. Because <laughs> that's not what this is about. Yeah. Yeah. In actuality, I could avoid the subject of money altogether, probably indefinitely, and we would do fine. You know, we went through a financial crisis. We had to let some folks go, but we're stable now. We're good. Yeah. We're paying the bills. 
All is well. Don't need more money for the light bill. That's not what this is about. I could avoid this topic. The reason why I am preaching this sermon today is for your benefit. And if at any point you get it in your mind or heart that I'm trying to take money from you for me or for the church, please do not give here. Take it to another church that you trust. Because in no way, shape or form am I trying to fleece you. And by the way, the offering don't come to me anyway. Matter of fact, my wife and I have been faithful givers in this house for many years. And so we're just like you when it comes to the tithe and the offering. We're no different than any other member in the congregation. Why? Because we get it twisted. And when we get it twisted in our minds, it doesn't hurt God. And it definitely doesn't hurt his house. I've seen God provide for this house through so many seasons in which we should have went under that I don't worry at all. But it hurts you. Starts with grace. And when you start with the, the when you when you approach the theology of money from grace, you start with the presupposition that everything you have, you have because God gave it to you. Right now, everything you got. God gave it to you. It came from God. Every penny. Everything. So no, well, I worked for all that I got. From whence came the ability to work. I earned everything I got with my own blood, sweat, and tears. From whence cometh the blood, sweat, and the tears. Even the blood, sweat, and the tears were the gift of God. The knowledge, the wisdom, the skill, the understanding, the opportunities, it all came from God. All of it. Nebuchadnezzar missed that point and stood and looked out over his kingdom and said, look at the kingdom which my hands have built. And God said, why don't you eat some grass like the cows for a little while? Because you, let's see what your life looks like if I take away the gifts that I gave you, the wisdom that I gave you, the authority that I gave you, the great, when I take away my grace, let's see what condition you find yourself in. He found himself with zero understanding out in the field eating grass like the cows. So it begins with grace that everything I have, everything I have, every penny has been given to me by God to steward, not to possess. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to God. So you all know we talked about the property the Lord blessed us with. We got a three acre property. No, God has a three-acre property. He lets me steward it. Yeah. Every inch of it belongs to him. Yeah. I'm a steward, not a possessor. Yeah. Because if I get that twisted and move away from grace wow. and think that I possess something, wow. then I move from that sense of possession to that. S- now, all of a sudden, I approach giving to God as an act of charity. Wow. Huh. Can I say to you that on your tax return, you're giving to God as charitable giving? But God does not see, God doesn't receive charity. He's a blesser, not a beggar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> He's not begging for you don't need your money. 
If he needed it, he could take it from you. You could suddenly lose all of it. You could wake up tomorrow and it's gone. But he's a blesser. That's his primary desire and role is to bless. Now, when I move from his grace to faith in the realm of my money, that's when my heart opens and says yes to the truth that everything I have has been given to me by God. Everything. When my heart embraces that, then the, net, the next result is my works. I give freely to God, not out of obligation, not because I'm required to, but because I have no fear of not having enough because I've given to God. I have no fear. I mean, if he provided what I have, then when I give him what he has requested, what he has asked for, will he not continue to provide for me what I need? If I start with grace, and then that grace is received by faith, then that faith will necessarily be expressed in works. But if my works are missing, it means I don't yet believe that what I have has come from God. I just haven't embraced it. I still think God's trying to take what's mine. And the problem is once I start living that way, that's called the flesh, where I'm living by my own power, by my own understanding, according to my own will. And it's like, it's kind of like when you tell a lie, now you got to tell another lie to cover for that first lie. And then you got to tell another lie. And pretty soon you're in this web of lies where you're trying to protect all of your previous lies. It's like that with my finances where if I live by my own power in the realm of my finances, then suddenly i got to live by my own power in the realm of my relationships. It's like that decision multiplies itself in every area of my life until pretty soon I'm living my entire life alone by my own power, through my own wisdom, according to my own understanding. All right. Uh, I'm going to take you to Genesis 28. This is the story of this guy named uh, Jacob. So, you know, there was Abraham. He had a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And actually, Isaac, uh, J- Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. They're fraternal twins. They're as different as night and day. Esau is actually a lot like his daddy. But Jacob's a lot like his mama. Jacob is the soft, tender, sensitive. He was probably a crybaby when he was little. And he probably cried because Esau was body slamming him and souflexing him off the couch and stuff. So Jacob liked to spend time in the kitchen with his mama. But Esau liked to go out in the field and hunt like his daddy. And so, you know the story of the tension between these two brothers growing up. Because the Lord had already revealed that Jacob was the one who was chosen. And so, Jacob, my wife preached about how Jacob stole his brother's birthright. Esau was older by like 90 seconds. But that was enough for him to 
inherit a double portion of his father's possessions. That's how it worked back then. So Jacob tricks his brother into giving him his birthright, then tricks his dad into giving him his blessing. But it kind of backfired on him because now his brother, who's bigger and stronger and more gangster, decides to kill him. So now you get to Genesis 28, and Jacob is in a quagmire because he got what he wanted through trickery, by hustling, by swindling, trying to maneuver himself into a place where he could possess everything that he wanted to possess, which is what his name meant, Jacob, the one who grabs the heel, which means he's constantly reaching out to try to take by his own power that which God has already destined him to possess. Which is the opposite of Jesus. Jesus reversed Jacob. Jesus, in the temptation, he's tempted to take all of these things by his own power. But he says, no, in the Father's time. The Father's destined me for these things. I will not try to take them by my own power. And now it backfires on Jacob. Now he's got to figure out how to protect himself. He took the blessing and the birthright by his own power. Now he's got to figure out how to protect himself from his brother by his own power. And so he runs for his life, and he's reduced to zero. Yeah. He simultaneously, he's a contradiction. He simultaneously possesses the birthright and the blessing and nothing. Because yeah. now he's running for his life with nothing. And that's the principle, isn't it? If you try to take everything by your own power, you end up with nothing. But out here in the desert, where he's been living his entire life by his own power, God meets him. He puts a rock under his head, lays down in the sand, and uses the rock for a pillow. Not very comfortable sleep, if I might say so. But in the night, he has a dream. There's a ladder stretched out from heaven to earth. Angels ascending and descending on the ladder. At the top of the ladder is God. And God speaks, I am the God of Abraham, your father, your father, and of Isaac. I'm going to give you the land that you're sleeping on. All of it. As far as your eyes can see, northeast, southwest, you and your descendants are going to possess it. Through you, I'm going to fulfill the promise I gave to Abraham that through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And I'm not going to leave you until I fulfill my promise to you. God visits him and he has nothing. And God promises him everything and requires of him nothing. That's grace. The story of Jacob starts when he stops conniving, when he lost everything because of his hustling and his conniving, when he lost it all and found himself in the desert with a rock for a pillow and zero possessions. God visits him there at rock bottom, literally his rock bottom and says, now that you have nothing, I'm going to give you everything and require of you nothing. That's grace. Yeah. And now Jacob wakes up from this dream and he says, Wow. That was awesome. That was crazy. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. It's the NGT, the New Ghetto Translation. But he says, I had no clue that God was up in this place. 
I had no clue that God could visit me in the desert. I had no clue that God would visit me at this place where I've lost everything. I had no clue that God cared. That he's been following me all this time, waiting for me to hit my rock bottom so that he could bless me and visit me with his promise. God is in many ways like a good lifeguard. Because when you find yourself drowning, the lifeguard will just sit and watch you drown for a while. They don't try to rescue you immediately. They wait for you to stop clawing. They wait for you to stop trying to save yourself before they save you. Because if a lifeguard jumps in to save you when you're still trying to save yourself, you're going to pull the lifeguard down and drown and both of you are going to drown. And so God waits until you hit your rock bottom. When there's no fight left in you, when you're ready to just surrender. And that's when grace comes. Jacob, you've lost everything. Good. Now I'm about to give you everything. And require of you nothing. That's grace. Now Jacob wakes up from this promise of grace and his faith is going to respond. How awesome is this place? God was up in this place and I did not know it. And then he erects an altar there. And he gets on his knees in front of that altar. He says, Lord, man, if you're really going to do all that stuff that you told me in the dream you're going to do, well, here's what I'm going to do. This place is going to be called the house of God. I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. And of everything you give me, I'm going to give you a tenth. His work. His offering to God was not a requirement from God. It was a response of his faith to God. He wasn't trying to see a lot. I hear a lot of people saying, no, tithing is of the law. Tithing is over. That was the law. No, tithing predates the law. It started out as a response of faith because I'm so overwhelmed by the benevolence that God gave me. I got to give something back to him. Do you know where the principle of tithing comes from? In the ancient world, when a man owned a vineyard, he would send servants out into the vineyard to work the vineyard. And whenever it was time to reap the grapes from the vineyard, before anybody touched a grape, they took a tithe of first fruits from the vineyard and laid it on the table of the master. The tithe went to the owner of the vineyard to symbolize that before anybody touches it, The owner of the vineyard gets the first taste. The first fruits goes to the one who possesses it all. That's where the principle comes from. And the, the revelation that hit Israel was God is the owner of this vineyard. Everything in my life belongs to him. So before I touch any of it, I'm going to take a tent and lay it on the table before the possessor of all of it. That's the principle. Thanksgiving, honor. That's Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your substance or with your wealth or with your possessions. The word kael. Your strength, your wealth, your possessions. Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of your increase. So shall your barns be filled with plenty and your vats shall burst with new wine. The principle of the first fruits is the response of faith to the truth that God is the owner of this vineyard. It all belongs to him. And so I'm going to honor him with first fruits, which is the opposite of saying, I'll see where I am at the end of the month. (laughs) 
And if I can afford to give, to throw God a few scraps, I'll do it. I'll give him last fruits, leftovers, charity, benevolence. You didn't get it. You didn't get it. There's this concept that we keep getting wrong. We tend to think God is saying, you give me the tithe and then I'll bless you. You give me the tithe and then I'll bless you. And that's backward. God has blessed me. So I will bring him the tithe. God has blessed me. So I will bring him the tithe. And when I bring him the tithe, I demonstrate my trustworthiness to receive further blessing. Wow. Yeah. When I bring him the tithe, I'm simply saying to God, I acknowledge that everything that I have right now came from you. I'm going to honor you with what came from you. And as I honor you with what came from you, you will be able to see that because I'm faithful with little, I can be made master of much. Because some of us, we got it in our mind, when I get here, then I'll start tithing. I just got to make it to this much. When I, hit, when I hit 10 grand a month, then I'll start tithing. When I hit 25 grand, listen, if you won't tithe on $200 a month, you won't tithe on 20000 It's easier to tithe on $200. It's easier to give God $20 than it is to give him 2000 But in actuality, if we take it a step further, you read Malachi chapter 3, verse 10 and following. God says, test me in this and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you, which you don't have room enough to receive. Which means God blesses you. You bring the tithe and God blesses you. It's actually a blessing sandwich. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> He blesses you before and after. I mean, that's crazy that God says, I'm going to show you that you don't get the short end of the stick in this. Now, 14 chapters before in Genesis 14, Jacob's grandfather was actually the first one to tithe. What happened was, what had happened was, in chapter 13, Abraham And his nephew, Lot, they separated. They had two big companies. They separated, and Lot found his his way down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Not good. God rescues them from that. But then these five kings, they come together. They raid the entire land in chapter 14, and they take Lot and his whole family captive. So Abraham calls out the, what was it, 300 men? How How many of his servants in his house, David? There you go. That were, that were trained for war. They armed themselves. And they go out after the, this huge army. And they fight them and they win. Yeah. And they recover everything. And they bring back Lot and all of his family. But not only that, they plunder the enemy. And they take all these... So he goes into this battle in which the odds are strongly against him. He wins this war. He brings home all of these spoils. And then down in the valley, this priest named Melchizedek is sitting with the table of bread and wine. And Melchizedek is a type of Christ, a typology of Jesus Christ. And Abram goes down into the valley 
and is served bread and wine by Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek speaks this blessing over him and says, blessed is Abram of God most high, of El Shaddai. And he just speaks this blessing over Abraham. And then all of a sudden, this is definitely revelation. Melchizedek did not ask for anything. There was no obligation on Abram's part. He says, stay right here. I'll be right back. And he goes back to the camp and he calculates a tenth of everything that he brought back from that battle and brings it to Melchizedek, the priest. Gives Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe. Law? No. Predates the law. It's not about the law. Tithing is not a law. I hear people say, we don't tithe anymore because we're not under the law. You're right. We're not under the law. It's not a requirement that God requires of you, and if you don't give it, you're not saved. It's a response to faith. It's the response of our faith, not a requirement of it. It comes after faith. It does not substantiate our faith. I had a friend, I had a friend, he was an East Oakland drug dealer, but he tithed. And I was talking to him, I'm like, what are you doing, man? He was, I'm getting, I saw him putting, I saw him putting a big fat wad of cash in an offering envelope for the church. I saw, you don't even go to that church. He goes, it don't matter. It's not for the church. This is going to God. I'm like, you're giving a tithe of your drug money? He goes, Hey, man, when I get my tithe, I'd be getting blessed, man. I'd be getting blessed, bro. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm so conflicted about this. But I thought to myself, this unbeliever gets it. How come we don't? This unbeliever just believes that he will get bigger drug dealing opportunities. <laughs> But you don't believe God's going to open bigger doors in your field? (laughs) He believes God to bless his unrighteousness. You don't believe God to bless your righteousness? It doesn't feel like loss to him. But it feels like loss to us. Every financial breakthrough that I have ever experienced came out of supernatural, sacrificial giving. Not that my giving produced the breakthrough. Let's not get, because that's works. But understanding that if I got 10 cents, I'm blessed. I'm going to give God a penny. Because if I can identify small blessing and honor God for it, then God says he can be trusted with bigger blessing. And so what my wife and I have, you know, there are certain things that I can't talk super authoritatively about because I'm still growing in. But I can tell you this one we got. Because over 22 years, my wife and I have tithed through every season of our lives. 
even when we lost everything, when we lost our home and had to move in with brother-in-laws or had to move in with my parents, lost our house, even when we got a note from the IRS that we owed them $40,000 and we gave up our home to move in with mom and dad for six or eight months, however long that was, the one thing that didn't change was our tithe. Because if I, if, if I succumb to this logic, well, we got to stop paying our tithe because we got to pay the... No, 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 no. I, if I could remove from every believer the terminology of paying your tithe, it is not a payment, my friend. Because that sounds like obligation. You pay the light bill. You pay the rent. You don't pay your tithe. God loves a cheerful giver, not an obligated payer. But we get it twisted if it's like that. But the, con- the consistent giving of the tithe for us is a way of recognizing in every season of our lives that if we step out from under God's grace yeah. and take matters into our own hands, now we got to live there. Yeah. Because we're in financial straits. Well, who's going to get us out of those financial straits? And how do we give him opportunity to bless us with more if we can't even be trusted with the small that we have? I was at a basketball game once, and this little kid, parents weren't there, saw other kids getting nachos. And there was an adult sitting nearby and saw that the little kid really wanted nachos and said, you want some nachos? And she said, yeah. So the adult handed her some money and said, go get yourself some nachos. And the kid went and got the nachos and came back and sat down right next to the adult. And the adult said, can I have one? And the kid said, hey, get your own nachos. <laughs> oh, we laughed. Because the kid forgot that quick. I was given this as a gift yeah. <laughs> by you. <laughs> that adult had the means to go buy themselves their own nachos. They could have. They didn't ask the kid because they were hungry. It was an invitation to fellowship over the grace that I have just provided you. So when God says, bring the tithe into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house, says the Lord. You know what he's saying? Can I get a nacho? And too many of us look back at God and go, Mm-mm, that's nachos. <laughs> Bow your heads and let's pray.